Hi, this is Daniel Karapkin. I'm speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario in Canada from Beth Avram Yosef of Toronto. We are on the Web Yeshiva platform studying Morena Vuchim Maimonides Guide for the Perplexed. We've been doing this for quite some time and we are now going to do chapter nine of the second section today and we're going to begin chapter 10 as well. Um, really chapters nine and 10 must go together because they cover the same idea having to do with the Rambam's uh, explanation and actually his chidush is going to provide us with a novel approach to understanding certain um, um, certain fine details uh, of astronomy that he has decided to uh, innovate in order to be able to explain his worldview and to his reconciliation between Aristotelian astronomy and uh, the verses in Tanakh. I just want to uh, just recap what we had learned from chapters seven and eight um, of last week. One, chapter seven had a real very important um, idea having to do with free will, and chapter eight had a very important idea having to do with um, uh, the fallibility of our sages in the Talmud, uh, this, the rabbis who bring us Torah Shabbat Alpeh, uh, the oral tradition, their fallibility uh, can extend to areas that are outside of halachad, outside of uh, legal aspects of Jewish practice. And the Rambam wanted to make sure that we understood that. So if you haven't looked at those uh, chapters yet, I uh, strongly encourage you to look to review that uh, shiur, that, that discussion that we had from, uh, from last week. And now we're going into chapter nine. There's a lot of material that uh, is somewhat technical and arcane in its, in its presentation to a 21st century audience. So what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to share my screen with you so that we can discuss um, some of the ideas as presented by some later scholars who really frame it in its proper framing. The first thing I wanna do, however, before we get to the handout is to really look at uh, the very first line of chapter nine. Uh, the Rambam says, the Rambam now is talking about the Ptolemaic planetary system that Aristotle subscribes to. And for those of you who have been studying with us this whole time, you recall that um, Aristotle and, his, and, and most of the ancient world and the medieval world in the Rambam's time believed in the idea that when we see stars and planets orbiting our earth in the sky, including the sun and the moon, they are fixed and embedded within uh, concentric spheres that are constantly in motion. These spheres are uh, completely transparent and the celestial bodies are embedded in the moving spheres that are invisible or transparent to us so that all we can see are the stars, the sun, and the moon, and the planets. And they are in constant motion, and the fact that they are in different orbits indicates to us that there are different spheres. Each sphere has an intelligence, each sphere has will, each sphere moves towards a divine aspiration, and that's what it is, is its cause for motion. All of these things have been discussed up until now in the previous chapters. Now, as the, the, the Rambam undertakes an, an interesting discussion in chapter nine, he reviews with us that there has been a debate as to how many spheres there actually are. 
He says, we have already made it clear to you that in Aristotle's time, the number of the spheres had not been accurately established and that those who in our time count nine spheres only count as one a globe that includes several spheres, as is clear to whoever has studied the science of astronomy. In other words, there are multiple uh, types of uh, uh, um, celestial motion that is that are going on there, at least Aristotle had counted over 40 spheres in his time based on his observation of different stars and different star clusters moving at different speeds at different velocities and in different directions. And as a result, he concluded that there were different spheres responsible for these different motions. But the uh, uh, philosophers of the Rambam's time in the 12th century break it down to there only being nine spheres. Why is that? Because they count one sphere can contain multiple uh, transparent spheres. And that's why the Rambam uses the term a globe. A globe means that it has thickness um, and that it has it contains within itself multiple sort of subspheres within that within that unit. And that would be responsible for the motion of many different kinds of stars and celestial bodies. And it's for this reason, the Rambam says, you should not regard as blameworthy this dictum of some of the sages, may their memory be blessed. And this is from Tractate Chagigah in the Talmud, in the Babylonian Talmud, page 12b. And it's in source number two in your sheet, Amar Rebbe Yehuda, Shnei Riki Imhein. There are two firmaments, and the Rambam understands that the firmaments refer to these celestial spheres. Shneemar Hein La Shemelokecha, that God is the possessor of both the heaven and the heavens of the heaven. And so it really divides two different kinds of heaven in that verse. Um, for he who says this counts the whole globe of the stars, I mean the spheres in which there are stars as one globe, and again counts the globe of the all-encompassing sphere in which there is no star as the second globe. Consequently, he says there are two firmaments. The Rambam here uh, tells us that there is one out of these nine concentric spheres that Aristotle discusses. The outermost sphere does not contain any star or any celestial body whatsoever. Its motion is controlled directly by the prime mover, by God, and it is responsible for the motion of all of the spheres that are beneath it, that are subsumed inside of it, and it its motion, therefore, is a controller of other spheres, but it is not moving itself any stars or any celestial bodies. Now, why is that important for the Rambam to basically say the rabbis look at there being two categories of spheres, the, the whole bunch of spheres that contain the sun, the moon, and the stars and the planets, and the outermost sphere, which is completely separate from them because it has no celestial body embedded within it. Now that's an interesting question, but as you'll as will become clear, the Rambam wishes to spin off that sphere and separate it from the other spheres in order to get to a certain number count, which I'm going to get to now. The title of our discussion for today is The Cosmos and the Pattern of Four in All Existence. And as what we're going to unpack and slowly discover is that the Rambam's objective is to reconcile uh, the astronomy of his time with what we had with what he had started in the introduction to his book to explain that he is going to 
uh, present to us an understanding of what's called Maasei Merkava, the act of the chariot. Uh, for those of you who go back all the way to the very beginning of Morenevuchim, the Rambam had uh, disclosed to us that his primary objective was to reconcile the verses from Tanakh that discuss physics and metaphysics, or Maasei Vereshit and Maasei Merkava, with the science of his day, and, and particularly Aristotelian science. And the Rambam had understood that Maasei Vereshit, the act of creation, will help us understand the, the nature of physics, the nature of the world around us. And Maasei Merkava, is, as it's described in the book of Ezekiel and a few other places in Tanakh, is representative of Aristotelian science of metaphysics or of the cosmos. And um, the, uh, the story of Maasei Merkava uh, has the number four recurring within it if you look at the first chapter of Ezekiel, which we will briefly. Um, throughout Morenevuchim, the Rambam refers back to this primary project of Morenevuchim. And in, the, in these chapters in the second section, he's going to emphasize how this pattern of four appears in the cosmos. And he's going to refer back to that when we get to the beginning of section three of Morenevuchim and more directly analyze the verses from the book of Ezekiel um, and reconcile that with modern, the modern astronomy and cosmology of his time. What I wanted to frame for you now in this entire chapter, because the Rambam now is going to get a little bit technical with us, based on a debate about the positioning of the spheres of certain planets in relation to the sun uh, that was posited in his time. So without getting too bogged down to some of the details, I wanted to read with you an article that I found by God Freudenthal, who's a scholar of Maimonidean um, uh, studies, that, about an essay that he wrote in 2007 called Maimonides on the Scope of Metaphysics, alias Maasei Merkava, the Evolution of His Views. Uh, if anyone would like a full copy of this in PDF, please shoot me a note or an email and I'll be happy to, uh, to send it to you. But we're just going to take some snippets from this essay, and he writes as follows. The notion that the heavenly bodies, to some extent, direct the various processes of coming to be and passing away of the sublunar, the sublunar animate and inanimate bodies was a commonplace in medieval philosophy. This was commonplace to believe that the goings-on of our physical world as we experience it and the laws of physics themselves, everything that transpires in our world is a direct influence of the motion of the spheres. The Rambam had discussed this quite expressly before, and this topic again recurs in chapter 9 notwithstand, and chapter 10. Notwithstanding his staunch opposition to astrology, Maimonides too acknowledges that the following is known and generally recognized in all the books of the philosophers. Speaking of governance, they said that the governance of this lower world, I mean the world of generation and corruption, is brought about through the forces emanating from the spheres. Okay, so how do things come to be? How does a chair come to be? How do rocks and plants and all living creatures come to be? Through the motion of the spheres, nature progresses. 
things are born, things die, all things are uh, elements combine and uh, uncouple from each other, things are built and decomposed as a result of these spheres. The stock argument confirming this view was that, as Aristotle already had observed, the sun exerts influence on the sublunar element of fire, the moon moves the element of water, presumably therefore we may conclude by induction that the other planets too exert influences, albeit less visible ones, on the sublunar beings. In chapters 2, 9, and 10 of the guide, Maimonides presents his own version of this theory. He begins by positing an astronomical premise. In the Almagest, Ptolemy noted that it is impossible to decide conclusively whether Mercury and Venus are situated above or below the sun. In other words, we see the motion of the sun in its orbit, in its celestial sphere. We see the orbit of the planets Mercury and Venus, and it's very difficult for an observer, an astronomer looking through a lens to be able to determine whether the sphere that contains Mercury and Venus, uh, the, 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 the two spheres, one containing Merc the motion of Mercury, the other one containing the motion of Venus, are those outside the sun or are they subsumed within the sun? Are they under the sun or they, are they above the sun? Now, of course, this all sounds silly from a, from a modern scientific point of view, but we have to buy into the system in order to understand what the Rambam is conveying to us. Okay, it is impossible to decide conclusively whether Mercury and Venus are situated above or below the sun, but finally opted for the latter alternative that, that they are below the sun, which became the standard view for many centuries. And what that essentially means is that understanding that there are seven celestial bodies that are in motion around our planet, the, the sun, the moon, um, uh, uh, and then you have you have um, um, Venus, Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. That makes up the seven uh, the seven planetary what we would call the seven star primary stars or the seven planetary orbits around our planet. You basically have Mercury and Venus below the sun, and you have Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars above the sun. Okay, that was the standard view for many centuries. Maimonides, however, adopts the opposite view. This is a big chidush for his time, appealing to the authority of the Spanish astronomer Jabir ibn Afla, who held that Venus and Mercury were both situated above the sun. And that's what is in the text of chapter 9 today, which we will not read inside. Maimonides seeks to enhance the, versimili the versimilitude of this unorthodox astronomical scheme by mentioning Ptolemy's uncertainty and by remarking that it was the view of all the early mathematicians. The assumption that all the planets are situated above the sun gives Maimonides license to introduce an idea on which the subsequent discussion entirely depends. And here's where Freudenthal reveals to us what the Rambam's motive doing this is. In other words, you look at chapter 9 in a vacuum and you say, uh, you know, the Rambam had already promised us that this book, the Moren of Uchim, is not a book on science. So why are you, Maimonides, 
inserting yourself into an astronomical discussion, which is pure science, scientific theory, whether the Venus and, uh, and, uh, and Mercury are above the sun, whether they're below the sun, that's got nothing to do with the, the project of Morenavuchim. And the answer is, yes, it does. Because if I can argue successfully that Venus and Mercury and, and Saturn and Jupiter are all above the sun, I gain a benefit in explaining how there is a pattern of four that works into the astronomical system that I subscribe to. And why the pattern of four is important is because I wish to reconcile astronomy, cosmology as a whole, with Ba'ase Merkava, the act of the chariot, and the fact that the act of the chariot as the number four constantly recurring should therefore reflect that in astronomy, we should see the, the pattern of four recurring constantly. So therefore, according to this idea, the orbs of the five supra-solar planets, the five planets that are above the sun, are all contained within a single globe. Globe is not an established, kura in Arabic, is not an established scientific term. Rather, Maimonides introduces here a new notion, and he does so advisedly. A globe is to be distinguished from an orb or phalak, the difference being that a globe can encompass more than a single planet-carrying orb, or what we called a celestial sphere. Thus, Maimonides writes, sometimes a globe, kura, is counted as one, though there are several spheres or, or orbs contained within it. Maimonides now considers the supralunar realm as composed of four globes. The globe of the fixed stars, which is that of the, right, you have the fixed stars, which are all of the stars that are not planets. Um, that, you know, refers to, you know, the, the Big Dipper and uh, Orion's belt and all of the stars that are contained in those configurations. Then you have that of the five planets. That's a separate globe into itself because they're all now grouped together above the sun. Okay, which now, so now you have all of the planets, which are, uh, which are Venus, Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. All five planets are grouped as one. That's one separate group. And then you have the sphere of the sun and you have the sphere of the moon. You now have four different kinds of celestial uh, globes, okay, or groupings. And that will help the Rambam explain then how the number four recurs in the pattern of astronomy. And again, that's the reason why he had to separate the outermost sphere which contains no stars within it because that's one sphere too many. So he spins that off and calls that Shemei HaShemayim, the heaven of the heavens, that doesn't count in our discussion of the celestial globes. Then you have the next sphere which contains the stars. Then you have the next sphere, so that's sphere number one. Then you have another, the second sphere which contains the planets, the five planets. Then you have the sphere of the sun then you have the sphere of the moon, you now have four spheres or globes that contain this pattern of four, above which there is the starless globe or sphere. The matter is obviously important to Maimonides, for he goes on to say that the number of the globes thus defined, i.e. the number four, is for me a very important basis for a notion that has occurred to me. 
And the Rambam uses that term that this is my Chiddush, and it's something that he doesn't believe that anyone else has discussed before him. And that's why he says at the end of chapter nine, now this number is for me, and I'm just reading from page 269 in the Pines edition. This number is for me a very important basis for a notion that has occurred to me and that I have not seen explicitly stated by any philosopher. I found, however, in the dicta of the philosophers and the discourse of the sages, indications that drew my attention to it. In other words, I've seen allusions to this idea that the number four must coincide with the number of rotations around our planet, but I haven't seen anyone explicitly reconcile it. I shall accordingly mention them and explain the notion in the following chapter. And then he's going to get to the reveal where this number four recurs throughout nature. And, uh, and basically what he's going to get to is this idea based on the Pasuk in Yecheskel, Ezekiel chapter one, verse five, that in Ezekiel's vision of the chariot, uh, there is this image of four chayot, of four angelic beings who are called chayot. And as we know, the Rambam says that angels are equals forces. These are forces and therefore the celestial spheres are also uh, chayot in a sense, are also angelic beings in a sense. And therefore, if we are, if Ezekiel has a vision of four celestial beings, then those beings must be identified scientifically as well. What are those four uh, rotations or four celestial bodies that are being identified in Ezekiel's vision, they are the groupings of the spheres as Ezekiel saw them. That's the way, that's the Rambam's project in chapters nine and chapter 10. Now, before we go any further, let's recall that at the end of chapter 70 in the first section, the Rambam was describing what the word Merkava means. The word Merkava denotes four horses. And the Rambam had said, that he had derived that from the verses having to do with the chariots of Pharaoh that were drawn by four horses. Therefore, I think, I'm just reading here from the end of the, the chapter 70 of the first section, he says, I think that when it was stated according to the literal sense of the words that four chayot carry the throne of glory, our sages called this Merkava on account of its similarity with the Merkava consisting of four single animals. So far has the theme of this chapter carried us, and we shall be compelled to make many further remarks on this subject. And this will be really fleshed out very carefully in chapters one through seven of section three, which we'll get to in a few months. Here, however, it is our object and the aim of all we have said to show that God who rides upon the heavens means, who sets the all surrounding sphere in motion, and turns it by his power and his will. And that is what God, well, that is what is depicted as God sitting on the Merkava. So all of astronomy, according to the Rambam, is a Merkava, uh, is a chariot of four chayot. And he had made that clear at the end of chapter 70. He is coming back to that now, but he must really, before he discusses directly Ezekiel's vision, he has to first put into motion the idea that throughout nature, throughout the cosmos, we find the pattern of four. And as Freudenthal continues, Maimonides' four-globe cosmology is a scientific innovation 
running against the general consensus of his day, that Maimonides should have introduced such a cosmological innovation, despite his own proclamation that his purpose in the guide was not to teach science, as he wrote in, in chapter two and in the preface, is easily understandable. It is the indispensable grounding of Maimonides' hermeneutic project. What he means here is that Maimonides in the, uh, in the introduction to Marina Vuchim had told us that one of the projects of the guide is to expound on the verses of Tanakh and make them clear to us, show us that the verses of Tanakh are, are reconciled with the physics and metaphysics of Aristotle. The cosmological interpretation of Ezekiel's Merkava vision entirely hinges on the assumption that the number of circularly moving celestial bodies is four as the number of the Chayot. The conventional view according to which the number of the orbs is eight or nine clearly does not allow for this interpretation of Ezekiel's vision. Maimonides thus introduced this cosmological innovation because it was a prerequisite for his interpretive innovation. It is noteworthy that the motivation behind Maimonides' only novelty on the level of science is hermeneutic. And Freudenthal sort of underscores this point, that the only time that Maimonides makes a scientific innovation, a chidush, is when he feels that he looks in the book of Yechezkel, sees a certain cosmological model and says, in order for this to make sense, we must be the arbiter of some kind of area of vagary in modern astronomy, even if it means going with a minority opinion. So even though the majority of, of my contemporary scientists and astronomers of today say that you cannot group the planets into one grouping because some planets are below the sun and some planets are above the sun, nonetheless, I will take the side of the of the, the da'at yachid, of the minority opinion, I will group all five planets together so that I can call them one of the four, and I will have the moon, sun, the planets, and the stars. Those are my four spheres. And that's the four aspects of the Godhead, as it were, in Ezekiel's vision. And those are the four chayot. Wonderful. I should also point out before we go into chapter 10 that the, the Rambam, using this chidush that he writes in the Moranevuchim, is departing from his conception of astronomy that he had codified in Mishneh Torah several decades before when he wrote the Mishneh Torah. Um, uh, he had depicted a different way of understanding the order of the various celestial spheres, more in line with the majority opinion. And if you, it's, a, it's quite explicit here in chapter three of Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah, Halacha Aleph. He says, The celestial spheres, or what he had called orbs in the, in the other text, uh, go by different names in scripture. Sometimes it's called shamayim, sometimes it's called rakia, sometimes it's called zavul, and sometimes it's called aravot. Maimonides says there are nine celestial spheres. Galgal hakarov mimenu hu galgal hayareach. The closest sphere to us is the moon sphere. And as we'll see in the next chapter, the moon has special uh, uh, influence upon, the, upon nature in our world because it is closest to us. 
Ugalgal Shabo HaKochav HaNikra Kochav. The next sphere has the star or planet that is called Kochav, which most translators identify as Mercury. Noga. The next celestial sphere above that is Noga, which we trans, which most people translate as Venus. The Galgal Rivii, the next sphere out from, from that above that is Shabo Chama, is the sun. Uh-oh, what are we seeing? Mercury and Venus are below the sun. And then he says, Vigalgal Chamishi Shabo Ma'adim. The, the sphere that is above the sun is the red planet or the red star or Mars. Vigalgal Shishi Shabo Kochav Tzedek. The next sphere above that is Jupiter. Vigalgal Shivi Shabo Shabbatai. The sphere above that is Saturn. Vigalgal Shmini Shabo Sha'ar Kola Kochavim Shinirim Barakia. That's the, the, uh, the eighth sphere above that, above Saturn, is where the rest of the stars are embedded. And then the Galgal Tishi'i, Hu Galgal HaChozer Bechol Yomin HaMizrach LeMarav, Vuhu HaMakif UMisabev Etako. And the outermost sphere, the one that the Rambam says is, is devoid of any celestial bodies, is the one that surrounds all of the other spheres and is constantly in orbit day and night from west, from east to west. It may look like all of the planetary bodies, all of the celestial bodies are part of one motion, part of one sphere. Despite the fact, because we look at the sky two-dimensionally, we don't see that there's an expanse that is uh, that is div- divisible into different layers. It's because the spheres themselves are completely transparent like glass and sapphire. And that is why we can see even the stars in the in the uh, eighth sphere, which is the furthest away from us, because all of the spheres below it are completely transparent. Okay. So that's the Rambam's position on, on the celestial bodies. You see very clearly that what he has said in chapter nine about positioning Mars, uh, sorry, Venus and Mercury above the sun is a departure from what he had posited in the Mishnah Torah. Machlokas between the Mishnah Torah and the Moren Vuchim. Moren Vuchim is his chidush, and Mishnah Torah is where he is the conventional, provides us with convention. Okay, why? so let's continue where he's getting to. So now we begin chapter 10. And we're just going to scratch the surface of chapter 10 this week, and we'll do the bulk of it, God willing, uh, in, uh, next, next week. It is known and generally recognized in all the books of the philosophers, speaking of governance and the governance of this lower world, uh, that everything is brought about through the forces overflowing from the spheres. We've discussed that in Freud and Fall's article. We have mentioned this several times, and you will likewise, you will find likewise that the sages say that there is not a single herb or blade of grass below. This is a quote from Bereshit Rabbah, the Medrash, source number seven, Amar Rabbi Simon, Ein lecha kol esev ve'esev, there is no blade of grass. She'ein lo mazal berakia shema ke'oto, that does not have a star, or what's called a mazal, the rabbis called a mazal, a, 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 a some kind of astrological force that is striking it, the Omer Lo Gadel telling it to grow. 
Ahu dichtiv based on a verse in Job, Hayadatach hukot shamayim imtasim mishtaro ba'aretz lashon shoter. That are you capable of understanding the, the, the rules of the heavens, uh, uh, how, it, how it places its enforcement upon the earth. So we see that the celestial bodies have enforcement or influence upon what goes down on earth. For, um, and, and he quotes this, uh, this medrash. Now they also call a star mazal. You will find this clearly, we're on page 270 now, you will find this clearly in the beginning of Bereshit Rabbah in the same passage. For they say, and how do I know that the word mazal means stars? The Rambam says clearly in the same chapter of the Medrash Rabbah, it says that there is a mazal that completes its motion in 30 days, and there is a mazal that completes its motion in 30 years. By means of this dictum, they have made it clear that even individuals subject to generation have forces of the stars that are specially assigned to them. And essentially what the Rambam is trying to communicate to us over here is, is that number one, the word mazal clearly means a star because our sages in the very same chapter, which you have here below, uh, discuss the idea that different mazalot travel at different trajectories and different speeds, which is clearly indicative of some kind of celestial motion, which is what we refer to when we talk about the stars and the planets. Okay, and what he's what we further see is that the rabbis are alluding to us that even though there is a general influence of overflow of the divinity from the celestial spheres, nonetheless, each and every component of creation is directly affected in a unique way from this kind of divine overflow. Okay, and through all the forces of, and though all the forces of the sphere pervade all the existence, all that exists, yet there also exists a force specially assigned to a certain species, as is the case with regard to the forces of a single body, in as much as all that exists is, as we have mentioned, a single individual. What the Rambam means to say here is that he had set down in chapter 72 of the first section that because God is unitary, the all of existence that emanates from him must also be unitary in some sense or another. And based on that, even when we look at a statement of our sages that a single component of creation is affected by a star, it really means that that individual component is part of a larger whole. Now, different stars have different influences over different types or different components of creation, but since everything is unitary, everything comes together. What he's referring to when he, when he says this idea that in as much as all that exists as we have mentioned is a single individual, he's referring back to, to chapter 72 at the very beginning on page 184, where, uh, where in the Pines translation, he says, know that this whole of being is one entity and nothing else. I mean to say that the sphere of the outermost heaven with everything that is within it is undoubtedly one individual having in respect of individuality, the rank of Zaid and Umar. In other words, you can call them by different names, but they are all part of the same substance that makes up all of creation because everything is a unitary emanation from God. Okay, so basically uh, what the Rambam uh, is trying to communicate to us is that there is divine emanation that influences 
everything that exists on our planet. And therefore, if there is a pattern of four that we're able to identify in the cosmos, that pattern of four will also recur in our world as well, which is a direct project, a product of the cosmos. So if we find four chayot in heaven, we are likely to find a pattern of four, four elements, four forces, uh, uh, and, and, and so forth. We will find this recurring pattern of four throughout creation. And that is the goal of the Rambam, to reconcile all of scientific reality with the number four as is found in the vision of the prophet Ezekiel. We will continue with chapter 10 and go through the various patterns of four, uh, Bezrat Hashem, God willing, next time. We're going to stop here and um, wish you a good week. And we'll see you, we'll see you soon.